Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome, everyone, to the next edition of Distress Situations by Reed Smith. I'm Michael Venditto, a member of the restructuring and bankruptcy practice at Reed Smith in the New York office. And joining us today, we have a very special guest. It's Mark Tony of Tony Corf. Mark is a management consultant with experience dealing with organizations facing strategic, operational, and financial challenges, but he has a special focus in the healthcare industry. In the business world, Mark is sort of like the Marines. The businesses call him when they're in trouble, and he, shall we say, hits the beach to solve their problems. So welcome, Mark, and thank you for taking the time from your schedule to share your insights with our listeners. Michael, thank you. Appreciate the invitation and also appreciate Reed Smith sponsoring this. Well, I think our listeners are very interested in to hear your insights into what's going on in the healthcare industry. But first, management consultants are typically what we call road warriors. How has the pandemic affected the way you operate? It's interesting, Michael. We this year have operated more from our homes, uh, like many people have. Typically, we're on the ground in boardrooms and in the C-suites. Frequently, uh, we take the interim management roles as well as advisory. This year, we have seen a lot more advisory roles because the organizations are appropriately focused on the COVID crisis and the patient care versus operational or financial distress. So we have been able to function more from our homes but we also have to go to the sites frequently, and we do have part of our teams that are working in the healthcare facilities. Well, kudos to those who are working on the front lines in the healthcare world to see us through this crisis. Mark, as you know, our podcast series is called Distress Situations, and that's a word and a world that are both familiar to you. I know that you've been involved in reorganizing, restructuring, and liquidating hospitals, nursing homes, healthcare finance companies, and typically you're brought in by management, the board, or even lenders in what we call special or distressed situations. So you're well positioned to talk about what's happening in the healthcare industry and the distress it's facing. For the last year, our society and the economy have been rocked by the pandemic. We've read and heard stories about how that's affected hospitals, nursing homes, healthcare professionals. So overall, your view, what's the state of the industry after all this stress? Healthy, stable, critical life support? It depends on the sectors. Uh, It has opened up opportunities for growth in certain areas, but there are certain sectors that are hitting distress uh, and are going to be seeing more of that distress. The funding from the federal government has supported many of the acute care hospitals, but the senior living and skilled nursing facilities are struggling. 
We have seen the behavioral health and rehabilitation centers experiencing distress. And the rural and community hospitals are struggling, as well as many safety nets. But again, the safety nets and some of the acute care hospitals have actually benefited from the CARES Act funding, et cetera. The the challenges are going to be, after that funding is used, many of these organizations have suffered from the decline in their elective procedures. And so how to stabilize, how to repurpose, and how to move forward in a new environment is going to be a challenge for all these organizations. Do you think these are long-term trends? You know, is this disruptive of the industry as a whole, or is this just short-term and they need to recover? I actually think this is going to be a changing point uh, for the long term. The advantages um, of the crisis is that we actually got to see the cracks, the breaks in our systems. And when you think about the healthcare overall, technology has been available for years and not leveraged or used. And I'll use telemedicine just as a, an example of that. Telemedicine has been around for 10 plus years and available, but the reimbursement and the uh, encouragement, if you will, the carrot to attract people to use it was not there. In fact, the reimbursement on it was not available. So therefore it wasn't being used. Today, I think we will see telemedicine becoming more prevalent and, and most of the public view telemedicine as having their doctor visit with their primary care doctor or their cardiologist or something over a computer. When I talk about technology shifting, I believe that it's also going to be the change both for critical care. Uh, ICUs will start using telemedicine for monitoring. You will also see it in ERs and and other type of uh, critical care systems. Uh, And so that is an important part that I think that will come from this. The other part is people are going to have to assess, and I I talk, when I say people, I refer to boards of directors and management teams are going to have to reassess their strategic value proposition for the communities, and they can't continue to be all things for everyone. Well, you talk about technology and, and the pandemic sort of being an inflection point spurring change. Do you think that technology alone is going to be enough to sort of fill in the cracks for these stress situations, or are we going to see overall financial distress permeating through the industry? Uh, I think technology may be a solution for the financial distress that you're referring to, and we are going to see distress across many of these sectors that I highlighted there, the senior living and skilled nursing the rural and community hospitals. So the financial distress is there. I believe technology will be one of the solutions for the long term. Otherwise, we could see failures and closures of some of these institutions, which will be very harmful to the healthcare of our our nation. So if management is facing this stress and you are a management consultant, what do you see as the critical leadership skills that rural and community hospitals and health system 
executives need to have to see them through this? Well, Michael, that's a great question. And I actually take it a little different view than some on this is that leadership characteristics are the same for small, medium, or large organizations. And I, I will even say in healthcare or not in healthcare. First of all, in healthcare, the leadership has to be about focusing on the organization's team and serving the patients or the residents. It's not about oneself. And all decisions should be made about what is best for the community and the employees, not the impact on the CEO or his or her position. Next, I think leadership has to always be truthful. Tell the truth to yourself, to your board, to the employees, as well as to the community. Never allow the difficult situations to cloud the truth or tempt you to mislead or cover those facts. I think that's an important part of leadership today. If you fear failure, fear failure for your organization also, not for yourself. That means you must keep moving forward. As you make decisions and as we move forward here, we're going to make mistakes, but we have to get up, refocus our organizations, redirect our energy, and keep the organizations, our staffs, the physicians, the nurses, the doctors, all moving in the same direction. And third is, I think management teams in particular in rural hospitals and health systems need to know what they don't know. Like rural and community hospitals, they can't continue to try to be everything to everyone. It is important for them to acknowledge when, you're, when they're facing an operational or a financial distress. It's important for them to, to acknowledge that they don't have all the answers and also to, to uh, convince their board, more importantly, or themselves that they can fix anything. What that means is they have to ask for and seek out qualified help, either through additional supplemental management, advisors, counsel, etc. But they need to be able to acknowledge when they need to fill a void in their skill sets. And, and you think that's a shortcoming that you typically see in the leadership of a financially distressed health system or hospital? It is. Um, and especially when we're talking about rural and community hospitals a little bit more and safety net hospitals. Um, you see typically three type of individuals that come into those type of organizations in the senior leadership. There are those individuals who are like early in their career and they're eager and they're wanting to grow and learn for their next opportunity or their next position. The second category I frequently talk about are positions or individuals who come into a position because it's their sunset. It's a great place to retire and finish up their career. And then there are those individuals who move to small communities and rural areas for the lifestyle reason. And regardless of the reason that they're there in that position, these people are generally all very good people and they're very capable of leading during stable and growth periods. Unfortunately, what we're facing now are very rough waters and they're not necessarily trained and they're ill-equipped for the thinking and crisis management. So my recommendation in those situations are 
that they, the boards and the management team have to step back and say, how do we support this organization either in the short term or medium term to get through these rough waters? The last thing I'd say is it's, it's difficult frequently for small community hospitals, rural hospitals, for the management team to make hard decisions because those decisions impact their neighbors, their kids, friends, parents, as well as even family members of board of the board. And so it's difficult for them to make some of the very difficult decisions that need to be made. So hospitals and health systems, the management with a lack of resources, financial or otherwise, what can they do? Michael, it's, a, it's an interesting time because this is one of the most pronounced challenges facing organizations right now as we come out of, we hope to be coming out of the COVID-19 era because there has been money to cover it. But as I mentioned previously, now they're going to find shortfalls and how do we address that? And, and you can't always cut the expenses. Many of these organizations and most, and I hate to say most healthcare organizations today are running fairly lean, very lean, um, because management has not had the luxury of having extra cash. So they need to look not only at where can I uh, cut costs, but they also have to figure out, can I increase my cash flow in a positive way by either grants or funding from organizations that want to see certain services provided in communities. And there are a lot of organizations that do that. There are government grants that support those things. But one of the interesting parts of this challenge is, is that with the great geographic migration that we have seen in our country, many of the rural areas have what I call the left behind population. And it generally consists of Medicare and Medicaid populations. And what that is also are generally the sickest of the population and the lowest reimbursements for the hospitals. So what I recommend is that there's a complete review of this business model and the services that are being provided. And, and there may need to be an elimination of certain services. There may need to be an expansion of certain services if the service can provide more revenue and there is a need to the community. For financial resources also, I think organizations have to talk very openly with the state and local leaders about the financial condition of their hospital and the risk of the failure of that organization to the community. What we find frequently are that the management teams try to hold their cards close. They don't want to share the condition. And so when it hits the wall, it's a surprise to the state leaders or the local leaders, the county and the town, et cetera. And it's much more effective to bring them into the tent to help try to solve the problems. Because when an organization, and we've seen a number of rural hospital closures already in 2020, and they're starting in 2021, by the time that occurs, it is a crisis for the community. And generally, the hospital is a major employer in that community also. So it expands beyond just the patient care of the community. It is the employment of the community also. Restructuring any organization um, requires a, a host of different talents, so to speak. 
you know, legal accounting management. But then in the area of healthcare, you've got some very specialized needs. How do you assemble the resources to deal with that type of a restructuring when, as you point out, that these very frequently are challenged situations? And this is a common question when we come in, Michael, and I know you face it too. People say, well, where am I supposed to get the money to pay you or pay for this restructuring that I've got to go through? Bankruptcy process is very expensive. And there is no doubt that all of those statements are true. The reality is, though, when a patient, and, I, and because we're talking about healthcare, it's easy to use a patient. When a patient comes into the emergency room and they've got serious trauma, you don't ask for the least expensive or what kind of a nurse can do. You actually say, I want the best doctors providing the care. I need to be taken care of. And, and that's what we have to do with these organizations also. And, and boards have a fiduciary responsibility to try to manage through. Not-for-profit boards have even additional fiduciary responsibilities beyond the traditional corporate responsibilities. And they have to look at those things and, and look at what is best for the community. And, and, and at times, the state or lenders will step up and support the restructuring cost because in the end, if it is a crash and burn, it's going to be significantly different and negative for the community. I often say this, Michael, that healthcare is different because it's not like a jewelry store where you come in, you secure the diamonds, you lock them up and you take them out the back door and you put down the front grate and you're closed. Healthcare is about taking care of people. Those patients have to be transitioned, transferred out, and their continuing care has to be addressed. And so that is one of the reasons that under the bankruptcy code, ombudsmen are appointed to ensure the safety of the patients in these situations. So the cost has to be covered. It needs to be managed very carefully, but at the end, it has to be bringing the 747 in for a smooth landing so it's not a crash and burn on the community. You know, as, as you point out, Mark, healthcare organizations or particularly primary care facilities like hospitals are different than a lot of other commercial enterprises. There are specific provisions in the bankruptcy code which could impact the ability to successfully reorganize. You have um, usually regulators or community supervising what happens. What are some of the particular challenges facing healthcare industry if they go through the restructuring process that separates them from the regular run-of-the-mill commercial business, the jewelry store, as you mentioned? I think they're it's a fair question, Michael. They're the traditional ones, obviously, pension plans on organizations are something that have to be dealt with. But other liabilities that are a little unusual for healthcare entities include items like medical malpractice, uh, where you have litigation pending against the organization some of them have their own captive medical malpractice insurance. Some of them have commercial insurance. But those claims have to be addressed in a methodical way in a restructuring. 
so that the litigants are not harmed in a greater extent than possibly other creditors would be. The other items are, as I mentioned, the patients, making sure that the patients are secured and that their continuing care plans are transferred to other providers that will ensure that those patients are addressed and taken and protected in the future. Just because we discharge a patient from a hospital does not mean that's the end of the care. Many of these patients have chronic illnesses and there needs to be a sustainable and viable future plan for them. I will also say that it's an industry that is regulated like other industries, but because of the political sensitivity of it and the care that focuses on the individuals and the communities, uh, you also have to work with departments of health. Nonprofits have to work frequently with the attorney general's office in states. And all of that has to operate if it's in a bankruptcy setting under the federal supervision of the bankruptcy court. And all those parties have to work together. It is not one against the other. It's really how do you bring and bring them together and make sure that the parties understand the sensitivity that each party is going to have in the case. You know, you mentioned the the need to provide for the most vulnerable of the patients post-COVID. Senior living, skilled nursing, rehab centers seem to have been hit hardest. What can they do to survive today and thrive tomorrow? That is one area of our healthcare system. And when I talk about our healthcare system, I do look at it as a national platform, even though it operates at a very local and, and to some extent in some areas, state levels, but at the local levels, we have to look at it from a national perspective. And as the pressure on the acute care hospitals have increased significantly for financial challenges, the movement is to move the patients from the acute care into post-acute or skilled nursing facilities. What I will say is that the challenges that they have is the compression because it's also the growth from the home health care is pulling patients from the senior living and the skilled nursing facilities. So they're kind of caught in this middle ground. Their reimbursement continues to get squeezed and they need to rethink the way they do business and their model. Senior living and, and skilled nursing facilities in particular, as well as rehab centers, have to start thinking about the quality of care. And there are several factors that impact the cost structures. It may sound counterintuitive to say, well, we need to retain or contain the cost, but yet you're telling me, you're going to tell me that I need to hire more experienced and seasoned staff. Well, hiring the more seasoned staff allows you to start providing additional services and properly caring for the patients and, and residents that you have probably better than you can today. There's always been this trend in skilled nursing facilities, SNFs as they're called, to hire LPNs and, and nursing assistants. Whereas I would recommend that we probably need to move more towards RNs and a higher skill level in our nursing staff so that they can do IVs, they can identify dehydration and pressure ulcers and bacterial infections 
ahead of time or early on so that the patient doesn't have to go to the acute care facility. There's a lot of pressure coming on skilled nursing facilities for what's called the readmissions. And so they will be penalized if a patient of theirs has to go back to an acute care hospital. And so how do you manage that? Again, increasing or improving the quality of your staffing mix, which requires paying more, bringing in mid-levels like nursing uh, assistants or physician's assistants, as well as increasing the areas of knowledge for the existing staff. The last thing I would also hit on for them is the management of their medical malpractice, Michael, because this is an area as the consumer becomes smarter and family members are watching the subject matter on pressure ulcers and dehydration and infections, the insurance claims are increasing. And, and I just saw a statistic the other day that some of the nursing homes can expect increases in their medical malpractice of somewhere between between 10 and even in some organizations, 30% increases. And as COVID has had such an impact on the nursing home industry and people are more reluctant to send their family members to them, which means you're losing your commercial pay. And as a result, you're more dependent upon Medicaid and Medicare. These are items that are going to have to be strategically addressed by the nursing home operators to succeed in the future, or else we're going to lose a very important part of our healthcare system. You know, you you mentioned the tension, I guess, between the hospitals and the nursing homes and how they deal with patients. Here in New York, uh, recently, we saw that Governor Cuomo has come under scrutiny for the way that his administration handled nursing home patients during the early days of the pandemic. While there could be disagreement about whether requiring nursing homes to accept the COVID patients that were discharged was good public health policy, but the aftermath of that decision revealed some disconnect between expectations and resources. Do you have a view on what lessons might be taken away from that situation? Michael, this is a very interesting question. And, and I would say, first, we must recognize that when these decisions were made in March and April of 2020, we were rapidly learning about this disease. And it was novel and it was new. It was overwhelming to many people. Second, I also would point out that we were devoid of any leadership in the federal levels, and it was every state and local government for themselves. So I look at it, Michael, and like a tsunami coming into land, and people were having to run, sometimes to the left and sometimes to the right. Once the storm passed, though, you have to step back and you find out that some made the right decisions and some made the wrong decisions. When people take the actions and make decisions, mistakes happen, and we need to learn from those mistakes. And I think there are several things that we have learned, not only in New York, but across the country. We learned that we need to be more coordinated in our approach. That's at the federal, state, local, and organization level. We need to centralize what I call the acceptance of patients at certain facilities and not at others. 
we need to quickly assess which organizations have the right equipment, the right tools, and the trained personnel for meeting the needs of the patients. We need to also work on and focus on the containment of the disease and the situations that we're facing at those times. And lastly, we need to ensure that people who live in communities that are served by financially distressed hospitals or organizations or nursing homes are cared for properly and potentially transferred to organizations who have the supplies and the personnel if they can't afford to get them or are not adequately staffed. I'll say that one, that last one that I just mentioned is important because people who live in certain communities in New York in particular should not increase their risk of dying just because of the inadequacy of the care of a local hospital. We can learn much by the looking back, as I mentioned, at the after the storm has passed. But from my view, we need to have a protocol and actions in place that are fair and equitable to all across the country also. We're sort of coming to the end of our chat here today, but I did have one last sort of big picture question for you. One of the issues that healthcare executives talk about is consolidation. As the big health care systems become larger, some observers suggest that the resulting efficiencies in market power are good for the delivery of health care, while critics think it's increasing the financial pressure on the smaller institutions. What's your view? Pros, cons? Well, it's interesting. Again, this comes back to, and I'm glad you talk about it, from the national healthcare system, not the local healthcare system. But one of the challenges um, that we are facing in the short term for our country healthcare system is that our rural and community and safety net hospitals in the urban areas are not sustainable based upon the reimbursements from their payers, which, as I previously mentioned, is predominantly Medicare and Medicaid. So the challenges to our national health system are not the large healthcare organizations gobbling up the small ones. It comes down to having healthcare available in all geographies. Now, to your question about the pros and the cons, I do view that there are a number of pros to larger centralized systems with hub and spoke type of model. It's a better use of limited resources, and we have limited resources in every state in the country right now for healthcare. And so many of the larger systems bring greater resources and investment power to support specific programs like geriatric or orthopedic or cardiology and oncology. The larger systems can also bring better critical care plans for the high acuity illnesses that the smaller local hospitals can't. And that's, that's helpful. The larger systems can bring resources in the technology platform for care plans and management. And that's both in telemedicine, but it's also in electronic medical records and being able to provide to the doctors and the nurses right at bedside the tools to make decisions in a timely manner. Uh, the larger and experienced systems also can provide focus and discipline on the smaller organizations for meeting the critical needs in communities and the neighborhoods. And what do I mean by that is that frequently 
the local board and the local management see new ideas and think, hey, maybe we should try that. Maybe we should expand our OB program. Maybe we should become the cancer center. Well, those take substantial investments. And I believe larger systems are better at the discipline and the focus that is mandatory to be able to build a sustainable future. Then the last thing from a pro, you know, it's the one that everyone jumps to first, but I I generally talk about it last is the larger systems have better negotiating power for the providers uh, against the payers and the suppliers. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention as the funding, both at the state level, federal level, local level has declined for the doctors, the hospitals, the nursing homes, the group that has benefited significantly over the many years are the payers or the insurance companies. You know, an example is the earnings last year was a record for United Healthcare. And so when you look at those, you you have to have some power to negotiate better rates. And I believe the larger systems are better at that. Now, Michael, on the con side, there's no doubt that local communities generally have much pride in their local hospitals. And when the control of the local entity is lost, the community feels like it's lost one of its cornerstones of the organizations. It's like losing a museum or one of your schools when you lose the hospital. And and it generally is one of the large employers in those communities. They also lose some of the care that can be provided by the local doctors and nurses. And frequently, the local physicians and providers feel like they're left out because the new larger group brings in their own network and transfers some of the uh, care out and back into the mothership uh, in a spoken hub type of model. The, The other item that I would hit on is local boards and community leaders frequently lose influence over their local operations also. And that is something that they have pride in, they feel strongly about. Uh, But ultimately, this comes back to both the management and the board stepping back and saying, what is the long-term viable plan, sustainable plan for our institution and being able to serve our community the best? And it's not about keeping my position on the board or keeping my job as the CEO. It has to be what's best for the community, the patient care, and the employees. Well, Mark, you've given us a lot to think about here in terms of what's happening in the healthcare industry. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, share those insights with us. Based on what you've told us, I think you're going to be pretty busy over the next few years. So I look forward to seeing you soon. And all of our listeners, thank you for listening in and spending some time with Mark Tony from Tony Corf Partners. Please join us for our next episode of Distress Situations. Thank you very much. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and on our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.
This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved. 